and welcome to Funny Business. A little bit of funny and a lot of business on this one. Don't worry about that. I'm Locke. <laughs> I'm Rob. And on today's episode, we have Henry Innes, uh, CEO and co-founder of Mutinex. And I'll give you a hot tip. If you like data and you're interested in the world of how did marketing actually move the needle for your business, you'll love this chat. Hey, he loves the Hawaiian shirt. And I feel like I love him because the way he thinks about business and growth and strategy and all that stuff, I feel like be good to huddle in in a room on him and talk business all day, wouldn't it? I, I'd be scared if you were in spearfishing a bit like Hen is because yeah. I reckon I'd trust you very much with a big uh, a big spearfish gun. I'd be a bit scared of being around you. Don't walk in front of me. No, not know. at all. Enjoy the chat. Love that joke every time. Hey, that? Man, thank you so much for jumping on the Funny Business Podcast. For those at home listening, please tell us who I am. What do you do? Uh, so my name's Henry. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Mutinex. Uh, Mutinex is kind of helps helps most businesses model their growth, um, and in and in doing so, like pretty much every business has thousands of decisions they can possibly make about growth. It's it's a bit overwhelming for the average human, and so we process and model that and find and basically find the best decisions in the data that are. That somebody should actually be making and they use that to kind of you know make better decisions about what they do next and about what they do next in marketing and pricing and all these other like really complex topics that you normally get stuck in a spreadsheet for hours doing and it kind of really sucks so um so yeah we solve that problem for them man when we were doing our research for this chat we were sort of blown away by the complexity of what it is that you're doing we'd love to get into maybe like how did the concept actually come like where did it start where did you think this is a this is a problem that we need to tackle well, like, I think I spent about 10 years around kind of, you know, in and around data at, uh, at advertising agencies. And what you could see in advertising agencies is like, even the best and most progressive customers were still drowning in options of, of what to do. Like, nobody had consistent sources of truth. Nobody had a consistent source of truth to go like, Here's, here's how we grow revenue, here's how we don't, here's like what one system is saying to tell us that. So I think that's a really, really hard problem and, and it felt like a hard problem. It had traditionally been solved by something called like market mix modeling. So market mix modeling is a relatively complex econometrics technique, which was done bespoke. You do it like once a year roughly. And when you did it that once a year, that, that would fall in against your annual planning cycle. So by doing it in that once a year cycle with the speed that the modern media market moves at, there was just no way that was a usable tool anymore. We could kind of see with the advent of cloud computing and also the advent of genuinely good artificial intelligence coming through, that it was possible to build a model that understood the domain of marketing and then you could put a business's data in it and it would go, okay, this is how marketing is working or how growth is working within this business's context. And so by doing that, we built this really large model that could solve that problem for us, the problem that we'd experienced in advertising, and could basically prove the effectiveness of marketing and find the next best decision for marketers. And what about you personally, man? How did you get interested in the world of data in the first place? Um, I've always been mucking around with computers since I was pretty young. Um, so, yeah, probably... Like my childhood was mostly computers. Um, it started in video games. I'm not going to pretend I was like coding at 12 or anything like that. Like it was definitely more like Supreme Commander and Age of Empires and than that kind of bent. Um, but uh, but certainly had an affinity for them. I think kind of coming through numbers just 
kind of made sense to me. And they're also a differentiator in like in a world of marketers who are very focused on creative and very focused on big media activations and things like that, having an appreciation for commercial numbers and how to organize data and how to translate data into action is it was a is a pretty big differentiator and you could kind of feel that in the early stage and and so I kind of, I kind of leaned into that really and and I I enjoyed it a lot as well like I enjoyed being able to find a pattern uh, that nobody else could see because you were able to manipulate data to to show you where where the kind of gap is and data is a little bit like art in that sense right if you if you can understand how what the patterns in data say you can almost have data speak to you in a way that just gives you clarity that nobody else has. It, it's quite a beautiful experience, in my view. How do you go about learning a skill like that? I mean, you mentioned before, like like video games, it's so funny, we recorded a pod earlier today and, and video games and people like growing up and, and experience that sort of getting into things via that. We'd love to get into your, your background about learning that as a skill. It, it's a hard one. I spent... A lot of my friends kind of growing up were engineers, right? So they were already coding and stuff like that. So it was easier to get an appreciation for, you know, how a database worked and, you know, how to manipulate data from A to B, you know, what a Python list was and stuff. All those sorts of aspects became a little bit more obvious. Um, I think going, going a bit further, it was then understanding the first principles of, you know, how marketing worked and things like that. And then going, well, how does data apply in that context, given that I've seen heaps of data before. Um, also just like mucking around with things like Facebook ads manager and things like that in the early days. Like I remember a really good prank I did on a friend once. This is when Facebook custom audiences were uh, like, you could target someone with an audience list of a hundred um, but then you could segment it by just their demographics. So I loaded in a bunch of friends' email addresses and then just started, like, targeting them with highly personal ads on Facebook. Um, <laughs> that was, like, a really fun example of how you could freak people out in the early days if you understood how the systems worked. So, yeah, I just, I just think there's always a fascination with the systems and the first principles of how marketing works. Like, marketing is one of those really interesting things in that it's, it's an incredibly complex discipline, but it's a discipline that's not well understood from a first principles perspective, yet influences the majority of the world's choices. So we kind of look at marketing as this thing where it's like, oh, it's just, you know, people making ads and stuff like that. Really, I think marketing is actually the quantification of influence. Um, and like, and if you think about can we build systems to understand how to better deploy influence properly at scale, I think that's a really interesting problem to, to target. What, what was the ad that you ran to your friends? Do you remember what the personalized stuff was that you got in oh, front of them? Not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do that to you. I'd, I'd do like oh, you something just... with wrestling or something like that. I was just sucking you in straight away. It was like everyday arguments with his girlfriend at the time, stuff like that. Like, like that I put an ad together. It was like, it was deliberately intrusive. Um, you can't do that anymore on the Facebook ads manager, but like this was in the very, very early days of it. I feel like, like I've always felt jealous of like the engineer mind of being able to just lock into certain problems and just go head first and just spend hours upon hours, just like fixing these deep niche things. And I was like, I just feel so jealous of people who can have that skill to naturally do that. Is that something for you that you've always sort of had and, and recognised early on where you can just sort of get shit done? 
I think that the characterization most of my friends and staff would have of me is obsessive um, and obsessive on very small things and very niche things and very like pedantic things. But that's what I enjoy. And that's how I enjoy thinking about the world. And that's how I enjoy, you know, constructing and, uh, and trying to understand the world. I believe that most problems can be chunked down into extreme detail and understood from like the bottom up rather than looking at everything from the top down. And I find that a more interesting way to observe the world. It's not everybody's cup of tea, um, but it's it, it feels more mentally exhilarating to me. And when did you realise that you wanted to get into the world of business and, and run your own thing and start your own thing? Uh, well, I had a tuck shop at school and that was pretty indicative of my intent. I, I also then got in trouble for selling essays at school um to to older students so so that that again was a bit of a a a signal of intent i think um yeah i think i've always kind of wanted to be in the world of running my own business and increasingly as i was in advertising i had a yearning to move into the world of software um because i felt that software allowed you to construct more principled thinking and and solve problems from a first principles perspective because you solve them once and it applied to many situations. And that felt like a far more logical and intellectually fulfilling kind of area. I do a lot of the space because I think the space is really interesting, right? Like marketing is a very complex thing that nobody felt could be quantified um, because it's too complex and humans are too complex and everything's too complicated to link up and stuff like that that sort of um, idea that it couldn't be done also made it a very fascinating as- aspect to challenge. We had a dude on the pod early days, a guy called <coughs> Angus Lovett, who was... Uh, oh, yeah. He did the performance marketing growth funnel for Pokemon Go and Candy, Crush. and Candy Crush. And his stuff was when he talked through around understanding the numbers of if you spend a dollar here, what that actually means is his idea of you're not predicting the future, but within some sense of the world, you can, if you understand the data and what the levers are that you need to pull, it's a lot more, I guess his same approach to the way that sort of you're talking, I feel like you both really get along is like, it takes the bullshit out of the marketing stuff where I feel like it is a, an overhyped space of, you mentioned before, like the creative and what should we actually, like there's a lot of different ways it starts might tackle this sort of problem, but I'd love to get into the what do you think is important for startups to focus on in this space? Well, I think most startups, when they market, need to understand two things. One is build distinctive assets from the start. If you look at the best startups, they actually have really strong distinctive brand codes that kind of build up and get get recognised and, like, an example I love in the Australian market is obviously Eucalyptus is a fantastic business, um, has uh, has pilot.com, which, you know, that blue that they repeatedly use in every ad is just seared into my mind as associated with them. And, and I think that's a really good example of, you know, being really consistent in how your brand looks and feels. So it builds really strong memory structures, which makes the whole variety of advertising really cheap. I think most startups don't understand the value of building a consistent and distinctive asset, primarily because they're in the business of adaptation and change. So it goes against a lot of what they think and feel. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is, you know, um, 
and this is probably a more practical and uh, practical piece of advice is that search is search and performance marketing is not an endlessly renewable resource it's mostly about capturing demand rather than generating demand and so where most startups go to is like I always say, like, what what earns you your first five million isn't what earns you your next ninety five, um, and and I think that's a dynamic that most startups end up having to navigate, particularly in PLG or particularly in B two B, sorry B two C consumer. Um, and so, when that starts to happen, I think I think you know most startups they just undervalue the idea of trying to generate or stimulate demand for for their for their business versus like harvesting it in a really smart way. You can get really smart at harvesting demand and most startups are brilliant at that. I don't think most startups are great at stimulating demand. And if you look at, you know, one of one of the all-time great startups, well, businesses in my view, is uh, Salesforce, right? Salesforce from the get-go was so heavy in, like, branded media. I mean, everybody forgets this. They didn't really touch, like, a lot of other, other things and they basically were running like software is dead. Like they had an amazingly distinctive proposition to cut through the market um, and to cut through the minds of people to go like, why am I installing software on my computer when I can buy it through the cloud? That was their whole central premise around CRMs to take on Siebel. And, and I think that's a really great example of how a big overarching narrative was what drove the dominant position of a CRM vendor now. And that wasn't a a narrative built for, you know, targeting people and stuff like that. That was a narrative built through big positioning and narrative that they then used to disrupt an entire market. Are you like, you know, when you watch TV or something comes up and you're watching the ads, is it a bit like <laughs> knowing how the cookie's made or knowing how the sausage's made? Like are you dissecting things all the time? You're like, that's a good ad or that was that shit or? Yeah, funnily enough, I don't watch too much TV, <laughs> um, but um I think I think you kind of know the components of a good ad and the components of good advertisers versus bad, um, and you know good advertisers t- tend to be consistent and tend to like cut through really well. I think the most amazing advertiser in Australia, being honest, is like just in terms of consistency, is Harvey Norman. Like they must spend nothing on their creative. Um, they are a hugely like re- huge revenue growth business every year. And that bloody song, Go, Harvey Norman, Go, like I still remember it. I can tell you exactly how it sounds. And like they have just been brutally consistent for 10 years, so much so that even if I'm in an ad break, I expect to see their ads even if I don't, right? Um, so I think, yeah, there's it, it's really interesting to me. Like I think most people would judge ads on how creative they are or how inspirational they are or how much they made you move. I don't think anybody would ascribe that's those sort of characteristics to a Harvey Norman ad. But I think they are such an incredibly effective advertiser despite all of that. And I think that's, you know, something that makes me go, oh, wow, like there's someone who really gets the principles of advertising without um, without necessarily needing to conform to the kind of tropes of advertising. Well, let's, I'd love to get rewind back a little bit. And then for those who are listening who want to understand a little bit more about Mutinext, can you get into, I guess, maybe like the first year of you guys uh, operating and getting up yeah, on the ground the and, and sort of what it's at now? Yeah, the first year sucked, basically. Like, um, I think the first, like, first year we were kind of like a consulting business trying to build some money to do products. Um, so that was 2019. We then had, like, a business partner leave for personal reasons, which 
just was such a difficult thing to handle really early on. Um, the, like we were basically living month to month. Most times, it like, it, yeah, it really sucked. Then we get into 2020 where we start to see a bit more momentum and stuff and we're starting to get a bit excited about everything. And then COVID hits, um, which is just like the worst. We spent most of 2020 and 21 building products um, and doing some consulting gigs on the side to try to try to keep generating some more momentum. Um, and then, you know, it was only really 2022 we actually started to really get momentum in the business and, and stuff like that. And we raised our first seed capital round and, and kind of got it going. But, I mean, the first year was like we literally worked out a hotel lobby sometimes. Like we... I remember our first office, a friend of ours lent us a desk and it was above this like really dodgy Chinese restaurant. Um, so like it was super smelly and stuff. Ping pong table was pretty good though. Um, and then, it sounds yeah. like heaven for lock. You'd be, you'd be eating fried rice oh, every day. dirty Chinese and whacking the paddle around. I feel like that's a good day. That's a good day. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't think you would have wanted to eat this fried rice. <laughs> like it was – and then, you know, and, and it was always just – just a struggle, right? Because you had a bunch of staff that were really committed, but like really overloaded and really overworked at the time. There was no support. Like there was no option other than do the work. Like you're trying to generate the work whilst building product, whilst, you know, trying to figure out how to run finances and R and D rebates and all these sorts of stuff. It's, it, it was, it's, it, it was a high degree of cognitive overload. I think the good thing about it is it kind of makes everything feel like it's sometimes on slow motion these days, um, which just you, you feel like you can, you're much, you've got a much higher tolerance for dealing with a lot of stuff, which, which I think is a really good thing. But um, scaling businesses comes with its own challenge. Like starting a business, I think, is just so scrappy and it's like wading through mud every day. Scaling a business is a lot more like walking a tightrope um, every day. So, so they just come with completely different senses of feelings um you know i think i think i certainly prefer the scale-up phase and the startup phase at this stage but um but yeah it was uh, very chaotic at the start you, you're also wearing probably the, the best shirt that we've ever had uh yeah, i guess yeah. we're on the pod at the moment like Can confirm yeah what, what's life like you mentioned now like it's a lot easier in the scale-up phase what's a normal week look like for you and do those shirts get a run every day yeah, so uh, I'm notorious for being like Birkenstock shorts and Hawaiian shirts year round. Um, I even go to Melbourne in winter in shorts and Hawaiian shirts. Um, so, I, I mean, I think my normal day routine is it's generally relatively consistent. Like I will generally get into the office at about 8, 8.30. Um I have that annoying habit of checking emails when I wake up, which I probably shouldn't. Um, uh, I'm not one of these people who, like, wakes up at 5.30 a.m. and, like, up and going and hit, hits the world. I kind of wake up groggy at 7 a.m. and I'm groggy until I have my coffee and I'm probably pretty grumpy. Um, I generally try to do one to two phone calls on the way to work, um, just probably, like, an investor call, just checking with an investor or checking with a customer. I generally try to pulse check my customer's every day um th that's generally a good thing i spend probably most of my mornings in product meetings or talking about product to some degree or working on a particular problem or spec i'm still quite heavily involved on like the development of the product and that's what i'm interested in uh afternoons typically a lot more in sales meetings and stuff like that 
Um, and then evenings is generally where I kind of, you know, write my strategies or write like, here's how we should approach this problem and things like that, write more kind of company-wide documentation and things like that. And so I kind of try to break it up into those three three kind of clusters throughout a week. It doesn't always play out that way. Um, you know, um, and then generally about, you know, lunchtime and 5 p.m. I'm generally playing a lot of ping pong. So, um, so yeah, I definitely love a good game of ping pong. So, um, I mean, I think for me, like, the thing I really enjoy is problem solving. Um, and I'm a pretty intense guy. So, like, I like being in meetings that are, you know, I'd say Mutinex culture is relatively fiery. Like, it's, um, you know, it's not afraid for people to put, put opinions to and fro each other. And, and we kind of celebrate that. We like... We kind of like a fiery debate and a fiery meeting, um, and I think that that's a good thing in our culture. What about scaling the team now? Like you mentioned at the start, the first few years are really scrappy and month by month and making things happen and <clears throat> bringing cash in the doorway focused on building products. Now, what, what are some of the challenges you're facing now, the different problems that you're looking at as you go on to 2024? So I think the big, cha big change I've had to make in my management style is managing and reacting to problems to trying to manage things more numerically for a business. And so I think that's a huge change when you become a scaler. There's literally too much information in a business for you to consume. So you have to almost create measurement across a business to help you orientate to what's important and what's not. So increasingly, that's where I've shifted my focus is to kind of almost trying to build an operating system and mental model of how the business works numerically which then helps me to understand where should I be focusing my energy versus not. Um, I think, you know, within a scale-up, you obviously have the problem of you just generally have a relatively high failure rate in hiring because your hiring has to be relatively quick. So I'd say, you know, about 30% of our hires haven't worked out. Um, and, and I hear similar numbers from other other founders as well, like about 30% don't pass probation. Um so I think like that's that that's something that we're just learning. We're learning to get much better at interviewing as well. Um, you know the types of questions you ask and things like that, and and probably interviewing in the negative. Like I got taught to interview uh, by hypothesis testing, which basically goes what is what are the reasons somebody would fail in this role, rather than trying to get excited about their skill set. And if you kind of think of it in the negative, you've got to disprove all the reasons why somebody wouldn't work out in a role before you kind of shift your focus to, can I get excited about this person? Um, and I think that's a really healthy way to interview because it it just removes that optimism bias a little bit. Um, the other things as well with scaling is it's, you know, I think founders and, you know, me in particular, I'm probably a relatively emotional person and, and like emotional about the state of the business and I get very frustrated about problems pretty quickly. And, you know, it's, you know, you have these images of founders and CEOs being cool, calm and collected. And like, I just don't think that's true. And it's not what I hear. Like, I think every founder tries to brand themselves that way. But I'm not sure, you know, I've heard so many stories from Australian unicorns that I just don't think that is the case at all. Um, so I think, um, I think learning like how to channel that in a more productive way and a less, you know, founder intensive way, I think is, is, is something I'm trying to learn personally as well. I love that. And I think it's like the adaptability and the flexibility to be like, that's what I feel. I felt like early, early on in my, so I got a frog in my throat career journey is just like, I don't know, sort of getting attached to ideas or that's the thing. That, and then it's just like, Oh, I need to have like, 
more of these and more of these and more of these and just sort of just move on and adapt. Like things like the way I thought about things is like I'm really open to changing my mind if someone can present a good argument, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 I think that's I think that's pretty much you know, I, 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 I think kind of, you know, trying to learn how to be cool, calm and collected is it's an onerous thing for anybody who's passionate enough to start a startup. Like you're kind of asking the very thing that makes you fight through at the early stage is the very thing you get critiqued for later on. Um, so it's a really hard thing to balance, but, um, but certainly one I'm trying to le- learn and lean into a bit more. What about doing uh, for founders out there who are looking to go through uh, a fundra- a fundraising exercise to scale up and do some different stuff there? You guys have recently gone through that sort of process. Any advice, any tips, tricks, and advice for people that might be looking to do something similar? Uh, talk to EVP. Um, um, so, I mean, look, I'll say a few things on this. Um, we didn't actually get our seed around that right. So, like, we we ended up having to raise from angels. Our preference was to raise from VC. Um, that was, like, a hard realisation and, like, something that ended up being pretty tough on us um, as, a, as a first capital raise. I've actually written a blog post about it so people can feel free to look it up and read it. But, um, you know, I think we – the mis- biggest – we made, like, two or three quite fundamental mistakes early on in that process, which kind of, you know, I corrected later on. One, we didn't have a very good financial model, which that meant we weren't well set up for success. Um, so I think that's that's was point one. Understand how your business makes money um, and be really, really clear on that. And so many founders understand the idea and the TAM, but not how the business actually mechanically makes money over time. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to, to get into people's heads. Second thing was is we kind of ran what I would call like a Dutch auction process at start where, where we kind of went to see every single fund and kind of were trying to say like this is the price. Um, and that was a huge mistake as well. I think we would have been much better collaborating with the fund, uh, one fund over a period of time to build a relationship and kind of work it up to the right place. Um, and then the third thing as well is I think understanding the like how the fund dynamics work is also really important because different funds have different dynamics, different outcomes that they're looking for. Um, and so therefore they invest along different parameters. Um, and it looks like VC is all the one thing. They're actually like very, very different approaches to investing in VC. And so I think people don't realize that. I think once you've got all of those things, you can kind of select a partner that's really good for you. So I built a pretty strong relationship with EVP over a period of time uh, with Justin Littman and Alan Zhu. Um, I can say nothing but good things about my experience with EVP. So EVP kind of, they helped us considerably in the business, get the metrics right in the business after they had like had their first decline of the business, but they wanted to stay close and they genuinely did stay really close. Um, then, you know, uh, Justin and I basically sat down over breakfast. He knew all of our metrics and numbers already. I've been giving them kind of regular updates on it. And we just both agreed that we wanted to do a deal. And we didn't kind of shop the deal around or anything like that. We, you know, he was being fair to us. Uh, I, I hope he would think we were being fair to him as well. I'm, I think he does. Um, and so we just ran a really good process in really good faith. And, you know, it kind of just came together. When we were doing our next round, we kind of tried to look around the market, but there wasn't anything compelling enough to make us go away from EVP. Um, and I think that 
you know, when you're dealing with investors, it's like, how are they on your board and stuff like that? And for me, because EVP and Justin and Alan have seen B2B context so much, like they know the patterns of a business, they know that, you know, the numbers are saying this, this might tell you this, um, or here's, here's how to think about the next problem that you're tackling, or here's how somebody else thought about this problem in a similar context. That's a lot of value add. Like I get a lot of value out of my board almost being like a conscience or sounding board to make me look at things or, or provoke me to look at things in the right way. And so because I got that, that, that I kind of got that really con consistent value, you know, I kind of loved having them on board and, and engaged in the business. And I think that that made all the difference. Um, and, you know, it made all the difference in my decision making as well. They just, they just kind of made the whole process easy. I was going to ask you yeah, about mentors and stuff, but I suppose, yeah, the, the advisory and the investors and the people around you sort of act as that for you. Do you have anyone else outside of that that sort of helps you yeah, out? Yeah, I've got, I've got a few people. Like, I've been pretty lucky. Like, two of Mutinex's, like, earliest investors when we, like, had, like, no money and they just basically just gave us a bit of money. Um, like, my first boss uh, and a guy called Andrew Baxter, um, he gave me my first ever job in advertising. He, he's been around for a long period of time and mentored me for a long period of time. Another guy called Nick Garrett, um, who, you know, he's like, um, he's now like a, a global partner at Deloitte, um, but he he was formerly Clemens at BBDO and um, he's been an amazing sounding board as well. I think I've just been lucky just to have like lots of really interesting and smart people come in around me and be pretty generous with their time. Um, my board is, has been sensational. Like my board has really been the people who are, helping me to become a CEO. I'd say probably I'm about 50% of the way there at the moment um, from that founder to CEO transition. Um, and, uh, and yeah, my board's like been pretty instrumental in, in just provoking me to think more like a CEO and constantly challenging me to level up. Um, and I think that's kind of what you need as a startup founder. If you don't have that constant provocation to level up, it's, it becomes very, very difficult to, to be effective. What about outside the the Mutinex space of um, just you being actively involved in in with other startups or and just interested in the startup space? What is it that you like about the space, and what other types of businesses do you are you are you into? Yeah, it's. I mean, I am very Mutinex focused um, for the quite obvious reason that this is my baby, and and this is the one that I, I want to succeed. I'm I'm mostly interested in you know, high growth, slightly disruptive ideas. Um, at the moment, you know, I believe that the LLM space will reshape a lot of, you know, business models um, and probably make a lot of them fairly redundant. Um, I'm very interested to see what happens in the media space. Like, I think nobody's talking about media publishing, but there's a great project called Fast News on a business called MI3, which is pretty much started to automate the tonnage of media um, and, you know, turn press releases into content really quickly. I think it's a very interesting business model. You know, I've, I'm involved in a startup called Resume. I mean, I think the thesis I've had around that space is I'm interested in the, I, I'm very interested in the idea that social media is too consolidated right now. And with the advent of technology and stuff like that, you should see a fragmentation. You haven't really seen that in the social media space yet. We've kind of had like, a fragmented start with Bebo, MySpace, stuff like that, then kind of just jump from like mega platform to mega platform, like it was Facebook, then Snap, then TikTok. Like you, you can kind of see those progressions. Um, so I'm interested to see if, you know, and I'm interested to know like if, if interest rates kind of 
come in a bit hard, kick in a bit harder, that likely means ad spend to a degree may contract over time and businesses may start to like be a bit tighter on a number of fronts. And does that mean social networks look to paid monetization? And in a paid monetization world, does that mean more niche social media networks with really small teams focused on niche topics like cooking and stuff like that tend to will we'll start to win out um, against the big publications and almost steal content share? Um, and so I think that's that's a very interesting area. You, you guys are correct me if I'm wrong, but um, doing so heading over to the states and doing some stuff over there. What's what's your life going to look like now when you? Go and tackle that. Are you still going to be based out of Sydney? Are you going to go uh, somewhere cold and where the, where the shirt's still over there? I'm going to be based out of both is the answer. Um, so I'm going to probably split my time. Um, still kind of trying to work out the details of that. But, but you know, Mutinex has to grow in the States to win. And I think, you know, our whole approach to our business model has been to build a a foundational model. So as in a model that gets better as it starts to get more spend scale in it. Um, I believe that the US has the largest spend scale for advertising globally. So if we win there, we win everywhere. Um, so I think the thing about, you know, where AI is going in particular is it's rewarding people who get scale in data within specific niches. Um, you know, the, the mass niche has already kind of been taken out by the likes of you know, OpenAI and BARD and all these other platforms that are taking the data that's available everywhere. So what you have to now do is basically take that, build foundational models where people don't naturally have data or where there's not naturally data available, but you can get access to it contractually or something like that. So I think that's a that's where we we play and um, and certainly where we we we're very focused. What type of stuff are you learning? Are you, are you delving heavily into this AI stuff? Um, what are you like YouTubing and, and reading about? Mutinex is an AI business like at its core. So we have a foundational model and and that's like what, what we have built quite explicitly. I think from what I read, I you know, I read, you know, obviously a lot of books on stats and stuff like that. AI really is, you know, stati statistics, inference and machine learning to actually, again, uncover patterns that just aren't able to be seen naturally. I think the interesting thing about AI is when you have a big enough data set the model basically emerges from the data set rather than you and you building the model and imposing it on the data set. So increasingly we're seeing that change. I think what that then means is that most models move from being small bespoke models built by data scientists to really large foundational models that are aggregating lots of data to, to let the model emerge. And I think that's where the next interesting space lies as to you know, some of the more specific area, areas of what I read. I love a book called Superintelligence. I love books like Life 3.0. Um, I'm probably more of a more of a reader than anything else. Um, another really good book is The Great Fragmentation by Steve Sammartino. He's an Australian. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I re read a lot of those sorts of things um, to, to kind of get myself understanding the space. A question we ask all our guests is a bit of a mental health one. What do you turn to when you're looking to get some energy back in your life? Spearfishing. So I'm an avid spear fisherman. Um, so I guess I've got an old fishing boat up at Port Stephens. Very often go to Broughton Island and uh, and go diving on Broughton Island and free diving on Broughton Island and and yeah, and spear some kingfish. So so yeah. 
seen any scary stuff under there? Any, any around sharks or you got the big spear? Oh, yeah, we get sharks all the time. Yeah, yeah. See quite a few bulls. Quite a few bull sharks, yeah. Did you see the story lately? I, I know it's not in New South Wales, but the uh, the surfer, there's been a couple of shark attacks down in, in SA, down there. You know, bring the mood up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, sharks are generally pretty wary of spear fishermen because you can kind of see them. They know that you're looking at them. So, um, yeah, like I've shat myself around sharks, but I've never actually had a shark be aggressive towards me in the water. Um, that's not to say there's like not a little brown trail kind of coming out of my wetsuit sometimes, like there definitely is. So, yeah. Well, I'm just looking at your Instagram now. You got archery, you're spear fishing, table tennis. Like, feels like you like doing lots of different things. Yeah, I I, I like having an eclectic bunch of hobbies. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I like, but yeah, spear fishing's my great love. Love that. How, but, how did you get into spear fishing? Is it? I feel like it's not like a thing you just. One day decide you, yeah, I'm going to do spearfishing today. It was a COVID thing. So I was living on, I like, during COVID, I went back up to my parents' place, which is on Daniel Island, um, and uh, and basically just chilled out there. And I just decided I'd be spearfishing a lot. And so that's what I did. Um, I just got into it, maybe lose a heap of weight as well. So it wasn't a bad thing. And, uh, and yeah, I just loved it. I just loved the whole experience. How did you go early with the technique Terrible. and stuff? Yeah. Oh, terrible, terrible. I like I couldn't hit a fish for. It would have been first. It took me about fifteen dives before I hit a fish. I think something like that. Yeah, yeah. But um, you kind of get used to it, and yeah, the hardest bit is getting to the bottom of the like because you have to dive down to the bottom and kind of sit there and and just kind of camo yourself a bit, and and then the fish come in to have a look at you. And the hardest bit is actually not getting too excited when a fish comes in because second you show a bit of excitement, they kind of know and they kind of spook off from you. So, yeah. I feel oh. like, like you'd be coming home bragging that you're a hunter-gatherer. You know what I mean? You'd be yeah. bringing in, like, coming home saying, here's, yeah. I caught this with my <laughs> bare hands. You in, know? in the Yarra. No drama there. <laughs> what about, what about anything else, like, outside of, outside of work and outside of spearfishing? What else are you into? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't have a lot of, like, time um, other than those two things. I spend, you know, most of that either – I mean, I, I sometimes go to, you know, musicals and stuff like that, um, you know, with my partner. But, um, but yeah, I mean, mostly it's, it's you know, outdoors, in the water, um, all those sorts of things. Yeah, that's that's what I really love. I love it. Well, man, we're getting to the, the pointy end of 2023, which is pretty crazy to say, but That's what are you excited about for the rest of the year and what can we expect to see next year? Uh, so you, I'm hoping you'll expect to see another explosive meat next growth story uh, next year. As for what I'm excited about, um, yeah, I think we are at the early stage of AI and I think I think what I'm getting really excited about is the fact that it feels like there's a whole new frontier of software for the first time in 15, 20 years. Like this feels like the mobile phone again. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that. Like, like I genuinely think that there are just new business models. You know, I think that there's a potential that, you know, consultancy businesses are going to get hugely disrupted by foundational model businesses. Um, yeah. It, it, it feels like to some degree, in the same way that the mobile phone, you know, really did a lot of crazy stuff to print media and all that sort of stuff, this feels like that moment but for B2B consulting, um, you know, and I think that's a very exciting time to be building businesses. 
Well, man, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and and letting us pick your brain. It's been unreal to uh, to, to chat. And if people want to learn more about Mutinex, how do they find your stuff? Uh, just find us on online Mutinex M U T I N E X dot co. Happy days. It'll be in the show notes too, so all the good stuff, you know. And there we go. Awesome guys. Hey. Hen Innes. Hey, seriously, the best the best shirt that we've had on the Funny Business Podcast in a long, long time. And something that I feel like you should be wearing. I feel like it's my type of setup too because it's the buttons when it's hot. You know, you very breathable, sweat. very breathable, very breathable and loud, which I like. And Mutant X doing crazy things and excited to see where they go uh, in 2024 after having some exciting wins, obviously making a big, a big buzz at the moment and um, having Hen come through and give us some of his uh, time unreal. Hey, and if you love the show, what can you do, Rob? Hit the share button. Hit that share <laughs> button, send it to a friend. And like I said last episode, if you've honestly listened to more than one episode and you haven't shared it with someone else yet, you're rude. You're dead to me. You're not dead to me. We still like you, but just hit the share button. It doesn't take smart. It's like two seconds. It's set up like that. Hey, funny business listeners, Caleb from SquareX here. I just wanted to jump on and let you guys know at the end of this app, SquareX is currently open for investment. So if you're interested in learning more about what we do at SquareX and want to get involved in the digital future of the agricultural supply chains, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or to the Dream Big Social Club team to learn more.